back to another episode of Trades Talk. Maggie Wymore here with my co-host Justin White. And today's guest is uh, Eric Anderton. He's the construction genius. He um, leads the Construction Genius podcast. And Justin brought him to me after doing his podcast and thought he would be a great asset to have on Trades Talk. So Justin, what's your take on today's episode and our conversation with Eric? Yeah, I'm super excited for this conversation, Maggie. Eric drops a bunch of knowledge. He has been in the construction industry, coaching and leadership side for going on two decades now. He has really actually opened up my mind around how to create strategy in our company versus just working hard, how to really deliver value, go the extra mile for your general contractors, and really just separate yourself from the rest of the competition. We cover a bunch of information and conversation around employees leaders, how to promote, how to set expectation. I think anyone listening to this podcast is going to walk away with a ton of knowledge, a ton of takeaways, and really a game plan on how to take their company to the next level, not just financially, but from a personal standpoint. Yeah. I think um, one thing that really stood out to me is specifically as a sales leader is his candor and experience on how to develop people with no sales talent or limited sales talent, but a lot of technical talent and what skills to develop to get them into that sales role. A lot of times in the industry, we see people who have that technical side, but have to play that dual role of project manager, salesperson, you know, all wear a bunch of different hats and we don't know what skills to focus on um, when they do have that technical side. So I was really, it was really great to hear Eric's take on how to develop sales talent within an uh, individual. So great stuff. I've got nothing else to say. Let's dive in. <laughs> Let's go. All right, well, let's jump into it. We have Eric Anderton. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Maggie. It's great to be here. Fantastic. We're excited to have you. So Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in the construction industry and kind of how we got here today? Yep. In 2004, I was uh, I started selling a leadership development program. It was a worldwide program. And my first client was a contractor, LB Construction, out of um, the Sacramento area. And from that point, I worked with some of the largest and best well-known contractors in Sacramento with that leadership development program. Um, I started my own gig in 2013. And uh, LB Construction is still one of my clients today. And um, I just love contractors. I have no technical background in construction, but I have a deep respect for the industry. And over my two decades plus, uh, or two decades working with folks, I've developed an understanding of the industry and I help people with their leadership and their strategic planning. And um, I do some executive coaching and things like that with folks. Fantastic. Well, we're excited to have you on the show. And I actually really like that perspective because oftentimes I grew up in the industry, very technical background on tractors and everything at a young age. But what sometimes I lack is the perspective from across the street or the coach's perspective. I always right. say, you know, the best quarterbacks in the game always have a coach calling plays from the sidelines. So I'm excited to dive into this. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. I think that's a great place to start. When, when we talk about leadership, I think folks have a different perspective and maybe a different definition of leadership. So Eric, just as, as simple as you can put it, how do you define leadership in a construction company? 
Well, I, I think a real leader is someone who can help us to um, overcome the limitations of our own individual laziness, selfishness, weakness, and fear, and get us to do better things than we can do on our own. And, and I realize that's not the most motivational thing to say, <laughs> uh, but the reality is all of us struggle with those kinds of things. So we're dealing with human beings and leaders understand um, that they're dealing with human beings and human beings have great potential, but then they also have some limitations. And what great leaders are able to do is to help people to overcome their limitations within their realm of responsibility. And as a result of that, really press forward to achieving the fullness of their potential as people in the positions that they're in. So well said. So I, you say it's not motivational. I disagree. I think that's that's very <laughs> motivational. Um, and, you know, that actually is right in line with why Justin and I wanted to start this podcast. We're starting to see this shift in the next level leader. Um, the millennial age is coming into the leadership roles. We're having these Gen Zers go into, you know, these new new jobs. So in your opinion, how is the leadership role changed from 10 years ago to the, the level that we have into in the leadership side of things today? Yeah, it's interesting you asked that. I was working with Granite Construction, which is a you know multi-billion public traded company, and I was working with their field leaders this week. And I think the way I would describe the shift is from commander to coach. That's the shift that's happened. And it's a difficult, difficult one for many people to go through because they're they're used to the command and control. They came up in the trades or they came up through the field and they were used to receiving orders and doing those things right away. And that's how they succeeded. But now they're in a place of leadership with the millennials, the, the younger millennials and the Gen Zers. And the, the coaching aspect of it is much, much more important now um, because of the imbalance between the demand for labor and supply of labor the labor folks have a pick of where they go. And so they can say, you know what? I don't like working for you and I'm going to go down the road and go work for somebody else. And so we can't just say my way or the highway or get out. We have to adapt ourselves to the realities of the labor market, to the realities of how the new generation communicates and then do so without violating our values. And I think that's a that's a tricky thing. It's something that you have to learn, but really how I would describe it is from commander to coach. Yeah, so true. Yeah, in developing your style, to, core values are something that I hold near and dear to my heart. I know Justin feels the same way. There is there's such a diverse level of personalities um, in this next generation coming up, and identifying to see what each what motivates each person, what um, how people like to be recognized. I think that's one thing that I've noticed significantly is. Some people like to be rewarded with money. Some people like a pat on the back. Some people do not like any public recognition at all whatsoever. And so really following in line with A, what the core values of the company are, but also B, what, what's going to, to motivate that employee to want to perform better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So Eric, I'm hearing you say, we need to help as a leader. You need to help your team overcome limiting beliefs and their own limiting factors. It, it seems like what I picked up from the, from your first description of leadership is that these limitations are often self-imposed yes. and right. We kind of create our own ceiling of what we can accomplish. And if I'm hearing you right, a true leader helps people expand their thought, expand their ceiling and push beyond maybe where they thought their cap was and push their potential to a new level. 
Have you seen great leaders do that in the construction industry? And, and if so, how does that, how does that kind of impact the company in a positive way? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, what great leaders are able to do is they're able to reflect on their own journey because if they're in a place of, of, of senior leadership, it's because they've overcome some of these limiting beliefs to one extent or another. And they're able to reflect on that. And then with the people that they lead, help them to overcome their own limiting beliefs based on their experiences. And the experiences may not exactly be the same, but if you, if you are in that senior leadership role, you have done some of that, whether you realize it or not. And what you should think about is how did I get to where I am? And then as I reflect on the people that I lead, how can some of those experiences then help them in the challenges they're facing so that they can overcome those and grow in their career? Yeah. Well, I love that being able to reflect on your own experience to then coach the the next generation coming in. Uh, I've I've actually found it sometimes hard when you use that experience to coach the next generation. Let's you know, I actually have a situation with a new business developer, young early 20s and we're trying to help explain and mentor and whether it's myself or other leaders in our company and they kind of have this mindset of, well, that's not how, like, that's how you did it, but that's not how it needs to be done today. They they have this almost self-righteous mindset of the world's changed and you don't realize that. And how do you, how do you kind of approach those behaviors? And maybe is that, is that just a toxic trait that you need to exit from your company? Or is that, is that, I just feel like I'm seeing that show up more and more. Okay. So the, the way I would, I would address that is, is to ask, First, I would ask, well, when they're saying the world has changed, how are they saying the world's changed? So for instance, it is true that I can now pick up my phone and I can text you, whereas 20 years ago, that wasn't happening. But what's also true is that sometimes that text doesn't communicate what the real issue is, and neither does an email, and I need to get into my truck and drive out to the job site and have a face-to-face -face conversation because regardless of the technology that we have, whether it's drones or whatever the case is, this is a people business. Construction is done by people. And so sometimes I need to go face to face with those people and deal with the issues person to person, as opposed to the text or the email. So it's true technology changes, but people don't. And construction is still a people business. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the fact of hiding behind the phone or hiding behind the email is the default mode that so many of our young entrepreneurs and business leaders are coming out of their the colleges with. Yep. I, I, I've seen this a lot. And I'm actually on an advisory board to our local college in their horticulture department. And they're asking us contractors, hey, what skills do the college graduates need that they don't have? Unanimously, the answer is people skills. Yes. They have technical skills. They just don't know how to talk to people. They don't know how to get out on the job site and communicate. I think you're hitting on a point that so many of us maybe just zip over in our training and talent development, which is face-to-face -face communication. And how can we potentially improve the people development and talent development in our organizations when it comes to people communication and face-to-face -face communication? How can we improve that? I think the first one is repetition, right? So you just have to say, listen, dude, this is, this is not a text and email business strictly. 
Um, you need to draw the parameters where perhaps this type of communication, text and email is fine. But as soon as you get to a point, <clears throat> a point of confusion or conflict, that's when it needs to go more personal. Phone at a minimum, face-to-face -face is better. And then, and this is really important, especially with young people. A lot of young people are used to their to their um, their parents dealing with conflict for them because you know they get to college and maybe they get a bad grade and mom or dad get on the phone to the professor or email and and kind of intercede for them. They're not used to standing on their own two legs. Um, a word to parents: Let your kids fail. It's okay. It's not yes. the end of the world. Okay. And so so what you have to do then is you have to you may have people coming into the business who have no idea how to deal with conflict. And that's completely fine because, you know, throughout all generations as you're young, you, you don't know how to do with that, do that. So you have to then teach them how to deal with conflict. And the best coaching model that, that I've found for doing any kind of learning is first, I'm going to bring you out to the job site with me so that you can observe me having the difficult conversation. So if I'm the PM, I need to go out to the job site and talk to the sub. You're going to, sh you're going to see me having that conversation. Now, the next time that comes up, we're going to go out together and I'm going to observe you having the conversation so that I can then give you feedback. And then the time after that, you're going to go out by yourself and have the conversation and we'll debrief afterwards. Now, again, that's just a, a simple framework. It may not just be three conversations. It may take 10 or 15 conversations. But my point is, you see me do it, I see you do it, and then you do it by yourself. That, that, that is so true. I, I In the position that I'm in, I'm in a sales director's role. And one of the things that I do is I foster um, young salespeople, either, whether they're either into their management role or into a larger sales capacity role. And... Um, when I have new managers get promoted within, a lot of times they're managing people that used to be their peers. And this is so true in a lot of the trades industry. Like you, you get promoted within and now you're managing people that used to be your direct peer and taking that approach of, hey, let me do this with you. Okay, now you lead the conversation um, and then that you're able to do it on your own. Not only does it build confidence in the manager, but it, it builds confidence in the people that they are managing that used to be their peers. Hey, like this is why this person's in this role and they're learning on how to do something. So I love that approach. It's It works in so many different capacities. Um, as a parent, you mentioned, you know, let your kids <laughs> fail. I, I'm a big advocate for natural consequences. So mm -hmm. if you do something, there's going to be a natural consequence and result of it. Now, it doesn't mean that you always have to get in trouble or, you know, but there is always going to be a natural con consequence if you do something that you shouldn't have done. So great, great mindset there. May, um, I, may I just, may I just speak to that real quick, what you said about when someone gets promoted? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think this is, a, this is a real struggle that folks have. Um, new leaders often feel guilty in their role. And the reason they feel guilty is because particularly if they've come up through the field, they're used to getting their hands dirty and doing work. And when they come into a leadership role and their role and responsibility is to develop others to do the work, they don't feel like they're working anymore. And so they begin to feel guilty. And yeah. what they do is they then begin to do things that other people should be doing in order to make themselves feel better. And they need support to help shift their mindset that I'm no longer 
a field worker. And that's okay because I've done a great job there. And now I've been promoted to help others to succeed in that role. And I need to be able to embrace my new role without guilt. Yes, it's, wow. it's definitely a self identity crisis a little bit there, especially people who have never been in any sort of leadership capacity before. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so I want to comment on that as well, as well, and keep this going because, and, and maybe selfishly, but with our company has grown, we're like 15 X over the last eight years. So we have promoted and, and some have gone well, some have not gone well. We've got, we have tradesmen or entry-level people who are now project managers. And Eric, my challenge right now I have is I have a fantastic project manager. He is doing two to three times the amount of revenue than any of our other PMs. And he's doing it at a better profit margin with better quality and happy happiness and satisfaction from our clients. And our immediate, our immediate thought is, let's make him the senior PM or let's make him the operations manager so he can tell all these other PMs to do what he does. But my biggest concern is, is he ready to go and take what he's doing and then oversee and manage people doing those things? How do you know when someone is ready to make that leap? And how do you make sure that you don't take someone super successful as a project manager, you move them into a director or a a higher position, and then they they fail, which would be the worst case scenario. What would be your advice for people that are in this position? They're they're growing. They have someone they want to promote, but they're they're concerned about that that you know um, vertical development of that employee. I think the first thing you got to honestly say is that you don't really know, like no, no, right? Yeah, you don't yeah. know. Um, but having said that, you first have to ask: Does the other person um, want to do that role? Because I may want it for them, but mm -hmm. they may be completely happy doing what they're doing. And I don't want to take them out of that role, even though it would benefit me, it may not benefit them. Yeah. So let's assume that they, they have a desire to be in that role. If that's the case, what I would be doing specifically with your PM is I would be sitting down with him and asking him to clearly articulate what he's doing on the jobs. And I would be challenging him, if you're in this new role overseeing project managers, what would you do to help communicate to the PMs what it is that you're doing in order for them to replicate that and see the same success on their jobs? So I wouldn't just, just throw them in there and say, now you have a new title and all these kinds of things. But I would be sitting down with them and being very intentional and purposeful about what their first 60 and 90 days are going to look like in terms of settling into that role and beginning to communicate through the company what the people, other people need to do in terms of running their projects. All right. I love that. So it's first identify if they want the role. Second, ask them how they would I guess second is how are they doing it currently? Third is how would you then communicate that to others? And fourth, lay that out in a in a sixty to ninety day plan. Yeah, and and, and this is the this is the thing. Be, before they even start, you've got to have that ninety day plan because the first ninety days yeah. are critical. And then what you also have to do is this, and this is what I would be doing with the particular person you're talking about. I would be saying to this person, listen, we're going to try this out. If it doesn't work, I want you to know that your position is still available. And we're not considering that a demotion in any way. It's not a demotion. It's just we want to make sure we have the right person in the right seat. 
you have incredible value for this company and you have a position at this company for as long as you like. We just want to make sure that we're getting the most out of you and that you're happy with the position that you're in. Setting expectations before you jump in. That that is so important. I have found it's really hard when you do need to take the step back if if you promote someone and it doesn't work, but I have not had that conversation around setting the expectation prior to taking that leap. So having that conversation now, it's okay to go, I wouldn't say back, but just to pivot to the previous role that they were doing where you're managing things rather than managing people, right? Yes. It's not a wow. fit for everyone and and, and yeah. that's okay. It's totally okay. Yeah. And yeah, you don't so- necessarily know if it's a fit until you try it out, which is it's such yeah. a critical piece. <laughs> And I think that what this goes gets back to is communication. If clear, concise, direct communication is going to eliminate a lot of the issues that we see when people are, it, it, what I've learned is if you give someone just a little bit of, of communication without giving context around it, they start to create their own narratives in their own minds. And they take this down a path that has nothing to do with the alignment where you're going. And that can really do, derail a culture. And so the more information, the more direct communication you can give to someone is only going to help the culture, help them succeed, help them understand why they're succeeding or why they're failing. Um, and yeah, I love it. I love it all. Yeah. yeah. So I, I call them like one-to-one meetings and yes. I, I try to have them with my direct reports every single week for about 30 minutes mm. and they're strategic high level. Eric, there's so many ways that one-to-one meetings, weekly, monthly, 30 minutes, an hour. And what we just covered, the only I think the only way you're going to know when your team is ready and and then versus they're going to be able to tell you as well is by having one-to-one meetings. What is your take on one-to-one meetings? How often, how long should we be, ha- be having them? Yeah. Um, number one, yes, you should be having them. Um, number two, you have to give yourself permission to have them. In other words, it's actually your job. Your job, if you have people reporting to you, is to schedule regular one-to-one meetings with them. And if you don't think that's your job, then you need to change your mind. Um, as far as how long, how regularly, I would say um, ideally it would be um, every other week. Um, mm-hmm. Every week is perfect if you can do that, but every other week. Um, and the reason why is because you you want to make sure that you just have the finger on the pulse and that the person who's reporting to you has a place that they can come to on a regular basis to bring up the issues that they're facing and work through those. If you're doing that on a monthly or a bi-monthly basis, you may find that in those meetings, the issues have become so large that they're hard to deal with in an efficient manner. But this is what happens a lot of times. We let time go by and the pain increases because the issue gets worse. And so mm. if you if you reduce the amount of time between these one-to-one meetings, then the issue doesn't get too bad and the pain doesn't get too bad and you can begin to work on those things and the person can develop over time much more rapidly. So I advocate for one-to-one meetings, 30 to 60 meeting, uh, minutes. Um, what I advocate too is that the person you're meeting with must bring an agenda They must have issues that they're working on. And what I would say is that that one-to-one meeting is a really good opportunity for coaching. And so when you're having a coaching conversation, the way you want to begin it is this. You want to say, what's your biggest win? And then let people talk through that. 
What's your biggest challenge? And if you have a one-to-one meeting with someone and you, and you just ask those two questions, the answers to those two questions will give you plenty of information for that 30 to 60 minute meeting to work with that person to become a better leader. I couldn't agree more. Our, we started having one-to-ones regularly about 24 months ago. Mm. We had had them, I would say, randomly we'd have one-to-ones, but the pain, like you said, would grow between these meetings and I would get blindsided, whether it was someone quitting or something else. And then you're, you're firefighting. So these one-to-ones, as soon as we started having them, I'd say, yeah, two years ago, our, I mean, our entire team elevated. And now we have our supervisors having one-to-one with our field crew leaders. We have our field crew leaders having what we call 10, 10 by 15 meetings, which is 10 minutes to prepare, 15 minutes to talk with our, our tradesmen, our, our yes. laborers, if you will. And when laborers get to talk to their foreman outside mm. of, hey, go clean this up, go do this, go do that. And they're actually asking, hey, what's your win? What's your loss? How's your family? The connection to the company, connection to core values and connection to their leader grows exponentially. Absolutely. And I, I can I can speak for that for sure. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah, one of the things, so two comments here, the first being um, the the people that I manage, I was noticing that they were having their one-to-one meetings monthly. And mm-hmm. I want to touch on what you were talking about frequency here. And I, in a sales organization, monthly is is too too long, too far mm-hmm. apart because, you know, we're, we're on monthly quotas. We're looking at everything and things sh- change so much throughout the month and you have these ebbs and flows. So by having them switch their one-on-one meetings to bi-weekly, mm. I instantly noticed a change in culture and identifying issues and corrective action plans and uh, performance improvement plans being identified earlier, which ultimately helped to get better results. Um, the second thing I wanted to comment on here is when I conduct my, my one-on-one meetings, I always use the, the the method of three things. What are you going to keep doing? What are you going to stop doing? What are you going to start doing? Awesome. And if you can't go into a one-to-one meeting, in my opinion, and identify those three things to an employee that directly reports to you, then you aren't working close enough to that employee. Yep. No, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Yeah. So, so I, I do have a little bit of a selfish question here because I'm in sales. So um trying to pick your brain and knowledge here. So I come from the trades. I had mentioned that, you know, I grew up in the trades. I horticulturally technically trained. Unlike yourself, you know, you are more of a, an expert and a coach. How do you recommend taking someone who is technically trained like myself? And a lot of times they, they are put into these companies and expected to be a salesperson or expected to be an account manager, customer service. We talked a little bit about teaching them people skills, but what other critical things do you think that they need to develop in order to be put in these companies and be multifaceted in their role? Okay. So in in terms of sales, there's there's a couple of things. Um, The first thing I would encourage people to, to understand is that folks buy from people that they know, trust, and like. Okay. And so you don't have to be um, like super charismatic or some sort of dynamic speaker or something like that in order to build relationships with people where they know, trust, and like you. Okay, so that's one thing I'd focus on. The second thing I would say to people is that kings talk to kings. And what that means is when you show up at someone's office, if you're there desperate begging for business, you're not going to get it. 
Kings talk to kings. So you need to show up in an office with a dignity and a conviction that you are the prize. In other words, it's a privilege for your customers to do business with you. And it's not an arrogance, right? And you are there to serve your customers, but it's a privilege for them to do business with you. And then the third thing I would say is you cannot control productivity. That is the number of sales that you make, but you can control activity. And if you focus on quality activity, that is selling your services or products to the right clients in the right locations with the right problems, then the productivity will follow. That's, yeah. I just want to know if that resonate for a minute. Cause that, those are a bunch of bombs right there. I have found it very hard in the commercial construction arena as a specialty subcontractor of landscaping, which mm. is very hard and technically, you know, advanced to put in these irrigation systems. Mm -hmm. However, the barrier to entry to landscaping, I think is much lower than let's say electrical or plumbing. You just need less education and people are easier to jump in. And I have found it hard to really communicate value to our general contractors in, in a low bid competitive bid situation. Eric, you dropped some great knowledge here. What would be when, when you're trying to close a deal with a general contractor and there's another specialty sub that's maybe five, 7% lower than your bid and, and it's a competitive bid situation you know, what's the approach there on trying to communicate the value that a specialty sub can bring to the relationship? Um, the, the first thing I would do is, is I would use referrals and, and I would use testimonials to, to, to communicate value. And the first thing I would do is I would ask, does this GC know other people that I've built for who I can, I can have, I can connect them with and have that conversation. Because if, if you have someone who, if you have a story around, I picked the low number, the low number burned me, and then I picked Justin and, and his company, and yes, I paid 5% more, but it was worth it because of X, Y, and Z. If you have those kinds of stories, those are the stories that you have to communicate. Um, another thing you've got to ask yourself, though, is if I am not the lowest cost, then Am I bidding projects to the right types of clients? Because to be successful, you have to find right project, right location, and right client. So if I'm not the low number all the time, then I should be thinking about where can I get into those negotiated contracts as opposed to just the low bid contracts. Mm -hmm. So yeah. your strategy, your strategy sometimes needs to change in order to drive the way you want to do business. Got it. I love that. And, it, and so it's not just responding to the bid board of what's out for bid and just firing bids off, but we need to spend some time on the on the pre-bid side, maybe even before we go out to select the right client. You said project, location, and client. Yes. Right. So, and yeah. two of those three have to be in place all of the time. Otherwise, more than likely, you're going to lose money. And if you want to really make money, you've got to nail three of those three on a consistent basis. 
And it's so hard to make money in the construction industry these days with price fluctuations and labor fluctuations. It is. It is. You, it's a tough business. Um, you know, you've signed up for a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And that's why it is so vital that you ask those questions. What are the right clients, right projects, right locations? Because once you sign the contract, you've made a commitment. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and this is the one thing I've found over the years is that contractors don't go out of business because of the projects they don't take on. They go out of pro business because of the projects they do take on. Right. No one lose. Yeah. No one goes out of business because of lack of work. Usually it's because they have the wrong work and, and they're just paying to do it. Yes. So strategy is as it's coming through, whether it's your leadership, your talent development, your sales strategy, your execution and operation strategy, the word strategy continues to bubble up through our conversations today. Right. And Eric, I want to ask you, what is your recommendation for a construction or trades company on when do you talk about strategy? You know, how do you have good meetings? How often should we have meetings? Are you talking strategy once a year, every week? I know you talk about kick-ass meetings, so maybe maybe give us a viewpoint into your perspective around that. Yeah, so as far as um, strategy, um, and let me give you a, a very simple definition for strategy. Um, strategy is um, a discussion around how are we going to be successful? How are we going to succeed? And so I think it's a mistake to be um, too detailed in your strategic planning. And what I mean is, is I am against dusty binder planning, you know, where you bring in a consultant, you spend a bunch of money, you come up with a sweet binder, and then you put it on your shelf and nobody ever looks at it, right? Yep. So what, what I'm more of an advocate of is let's get together on an annual basis and talk about what do we need to do in the next 12 months in order to be successful? And like you were saying, Maggie, I'm going to ask for the company, what worked, what didn't work, what should we do less of, what should we do more of? Are we bidding to the right clients in the right locations with the right projects? What does the economy look like? What does our competition look like? What are our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? Again, you don't have to make it too complicated. Um, and it's okay to talk about where do we want to be 10 years from now and to paint those big pictures. But in terms of putting together a strategy that you're going to execute on, I'm an advocate of no more than one to three years into the future, because we all know what happens, right? You make a great plan and then the market changes and you have to adapt anyway. Yeah. And so one final thought I will say on strategic planning, I think an annual strategic planning process where the executive team gets together for a day or two and goes through some sort of framework of planning is a very profitable thing to do. But I want to say this, less is better than more. So instead of leaving that with 15 initiatives, right? That and you only execute on one of them and everyone knows you're only going to execute on one of them, each person for their area of responsibility should go away with just one initiative for that year that they're going to execute on and then you follow up on that initiative on a 90-day basis and make sure that they're making progress on that. So less is more. I love yes. it. Yes. Yes. Um, well, Eric, we appreciate you've talked to us a lot about existing developed um, companies that are already, you know, built. Let's yes. shift a little bit and talk about someone who's looking to start their own company, whether they've 
worked for another or just wanting to begin their entrepreneur journey, like what were what are some things you would consider before jumping into the construction industry? Like what are some things that they should look for? Um, am I willing for the risk? Okay. So it, it's like, like the business I'm in, I, I don't have a bunch of risk, right? I engage with a client and if it doesn't work out, we shake hands and part friends, right? But you sign contracts, you put your house on the line, right? You may be looking at your boss right now and saying, man, he's got a sweet truck, you know, and he's no smarter than me. I'm going to go start my own gig. Okay, fair enough. But you know what your boss is doing is he's signing the contracts or she's signing the contracts. She's putting her butt on the line every single day and she's taking that risk and that stress. So the first thing you've got to ask is, are you willing for that? Okay. The second thing you've got to ask is, am I willing to go and sell? Because you don't have a business unless you can get out there and sell some work, right? You can put up your, your, your placard or, you know, your business card or whatever, but if you don't go out and sell, you don't have a business. So you've got to get your butt out there and sell. And then the third thing is, is that construction is a team sport. And so you may be a baller, but are you able to attract ballers to your company and then go through the pain and difficulty of developing them? Because unless you have the right people in the right seats, you're not going to be able to build a business. You know, what I'm going to ask you as a follow-up to that is how do you find the right people? How do you find the ballers of your business? It's a, it's a great question. Um, the, the answer is it's very difficult. Okay. So the first thing, um, I'm assuming that you're a baller yourself because game recognizes game. Okay. <laughs> So if you have game, you should be able to recognize game. Yeah. And um, and that's one of the big mistakes that people make is they hire in hope. They hire and they, th they hope that someone's going to work out. So game recognizes game. And really what you have to do is, is you have to go through the pain of actually learning how to hire and develop people. And it's not something that you can, you don't roll out of bed being an expert at that. It takes repetition. It takes blood, sweat, and tears. It takes failure. And you have to be willing for that failure. So let's talk about failure and hiring. Yes. My biggest weakness early in my career was that when I hired someone, I thought I was, I was really good at hiring. So I just, I assume when I hired someone and, and gave them the offer and they started that they were going to be with me for a long time because I was good at hiring. Mm. And I soon figured out that, and this probably only, I figured this out maybe three years ago. I'm going to actually make a lot of hiring mistakes. And if I can figure that out in the first 90 days, maybe the first two weeks and be humble enough to admit that I totally called this play wrong. And I thought I was hiring a, a baller and I was not. I am going to be much better off. The team's going to be much better off, but how would you recommend people going about admitting failure after making a, a big hire announcing to the team, Hey, we just hired this great salesperson, this project manager, I'm so excited for him. Two weeks in, you realize, shit, this might not be the right fit. How, how does someone get to that point? And, and also, how do you recognize that earlier, early on? I know you talk about hire slow, fire fast. Yep. Uh, tell us a little about so, that. I mean, if you can recognize it two weeks in, I would say congratulations, because sometimes it takes way longer than that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I have these conversations all the time with people about uh, I'm hiring mistakes. And and one of the one of the ways that the conversation develops is I have someone in my organization and I'm trying to work out whether or not I should let them go. And in order to figure that out, there's a simple, a simple question that I, I ask my clients. And I, I'll ask this to someone who's running a, you know, a hundreds of millions of dollar construction company all the way down to a $10 million construction company. And this is the question. 
If that person walked into your office today and they said, I found a position with the competition down the road and I'm going to go to that position, how would you respond? Would you say, hold on a second, let's talk about this, let's figure out how we can get you to stay here, or would you say, hey, it's been great having you here, enjoy the rest of your career? The right, answer to that question, the answer to that question tells you what you need to do with that person. The only question is, how long is it going to take you to make that decision? Yeah. And I've heard that the, just a flip of that is, would you rehire the person? Very good. And I think, I, I think, but I love your question. I like your question better because it's a realistic situation of, of the position you're in because you aren't going to rehire this person. They're not going to reapply, but they may come in and say they have a job offer. And so once you decide or you have this, okay, I would let them go. I mean, what's the next steps? Do you, do you make that decision immediately? Do you sleep on it? Do you talk about it? You know, then what's your action? Yeah. So, you know, we're having this conversation and I can, I can, I can just hear some of the folks listening to it who own construction companies. And they're like, dude, there's Eric, the consultant telling me to get rid of everyone. And I am not telling you to do that. This is yeah. what I'm telling you to do. Think of yourself like a general manager of a sports team where you're always evaluating your roster. And you have a schedule of games that you must play. So you have to field the team that you currently have. It's not like you can call in. The Niners aren't going to call in and say, hey, we can't play Dallas this week because we have too many injuries, right? You've got to play the games on your schedule. But what you have to do is you have to make a note of those people who are no longer a fit for your company and then work very hard to find replacements for them if they cannot be developed so that you're not settling. You're cycling out of your company, the yep. people who aren't a fit, and cycling in and developing the people who are. So it's not go out and fire everyone who sucks. It's just make a note of that and make a commitment to never settle and always be developing your team. There, there's definitely a level of humility here. So when I'm thinking about this, it's that person, everyone knows of someone in their organization that probably shouldn't be there right now. Yeah. Um, and they might be a person who was a great fit for that organization to get it to where it is now, but are they a great fit to take it to the future? And also you have to be humble enough to say, am I doing a detriment to this person by not letting them go? They might have a greater opportunity somewhere else that they're just holding on staying here because they are loyal to me instead of saying like, Best of luck. You've done, you, we appreciate what you've done so far. It's just not in our vision moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, what I ask my clients is, that, is when we're having this specific conversation, um, I say, do I have your permission to yell at you in six months time if this person is still in your company? Because six months should be enough for you to, to find that replacement and, and move on. Okay. So it's not going to happen tomorrow. Maybe it's not going to happen in 30, 60 or 90 days, but come on, six months from now, can I yell at you? And um, that's the way that we work it because if the biggest mistake a lot of people make is they just hang on and hope that someone's going to change. And what I found is that adults have an extremely difficult time changing. They can develop incrementally, but you're getting very much a finished product with many of the people that you hire. And if you think you've got the wrong person in the wrong seat, you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we always say we're not, we're, a lot of companies say they're they're like a family and 
I say, you know, we're not quite a family. We're more of a sports team because yes. we're going to, we're going to trade and we're going to look for the best plot players. We're going to recruit, we're going to develop, but when someone's not cutting it, we're going to have to cut them. And that's a promise that I've always given to my A players. It's just not fair to have C players next to A players on the starting lineup. Yes. Yeah. It's like I, I coach rec sports, right? And, and, and so in rec sports, everyone gets to play. And so that's always one of my dilemmas, right? Because I got my guys <laughs> on the bench and I'm thinking, you know, I, I love you to death, but I know you're not that good, but I still got to play you. And, uh, but at the same time, I want to win the game. Hey, business is not rec sports. It's pro sports. So let's treat it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. I read this thing the other day that said, if you are seated next to someone that is a high performer, you are going to perform 15% better. But if you are seated next to someone who is a low performer, you're going to perform 30% below where you should be performing. So just that 30%, 45% swing based on who you're surrounding yourself with is monumental. Eric, I can't help but notice you, your book and your back in the background of, <laughs> of your setting right now. So tell me a little <laughs> bit about the book, why your motivation to write it um, and why, who, who it's targeted for and what the message is behind it. Yeah, well, uh, the, the title says it all, right? Effective, hands-on, practical, simple, no BS, leadership strategy, sales, and marketing advice for construction companies. And I'll tell you where I got that title from. It was actually from one of my clients who took one of my leadership courses. And, you know, of course, you know, being a good consultant guy, I'm like, can you give me some feedback on the course? And I gave him the form and he wrote it in and he said, this stuff is um, effective, hands-on, practical, simple, no BS. So I was like, oh, there's my subtitle for my book. And I, I put it in there, right? So it's it's really aimed at construction companies from the, the, the senior leaders, the owners of the business, all the way down into the project manager, superintendent, and foreman roles. And it's designed to help you to understand how to become a better leader. And so it's it's very straightforward. Um, you can tell just by the way I talk, I'm a pretty simple guy, pretty straightforward. And, and those kinds of strategies and frameworks are packed into the book. And the whole goal of it is this, is that you, you read it. And this is what some of my clients are doing. It's really killer, actually. They're having these book clubs where they, 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 um, they buy a bunch of copies for everyone in the organization. They're like 20 Amazon, right? And then they read through it and they discuss it. And they take one or two applications from each chapter, and then they apply that on a 30-day basis and then have another discussion about how it's working and what we can do to improve. So again, you, you just buy it. It's a short book. It's very simple, but it's very direct, and it's specifically for construction companies. Eric, I got it right here in my hand. I got a few copies on my bookshelf behind yes. me. Yes. And the book club idea is fantastic. We've been doing yep. that for a couple of years. We read two chapters a month. There you go. And we call it the future leaders meeting. It's before work very early, but everyone's invited to come and whoever shows up shows up. But the one rule is if you show up for the first, first meeting, you have to make at least 10 of the next 12 meetings. There you go. So everyone, everyone's welcome, but you have to have consistency. And, and we're right now we're doing the 12 laws of leadership by John Maxwell. Fantastic. Yep. Your book's next on our list. So I'll have to report back on how that goes. Okay, so here it is, Justin. This is this is where um, I got the the C in SoCal uh, Bernards, and they're they're just they're they're really great at developing their people. And so the CEO contacted me and he said, "Listen, Eric, we we got ten copies of this, and we're doing the book club. Can you come in and do a Q and A with us um, after we finish?" 
And I like, I never thought of that, right? So I was like, of course, you bought 10 copies, sure. And so so I have this offer, and I know it sounds a little cheesy, but it's actually really cool. Um, if you buy 10 or more copies of the book, contact me directly, eric at constructiongenius.com, and I'll come in and I'll do a Q&A and a bonus leadership training um, segment for an hour over Zoom with your leadership team. And I'd normally charge 2,500 bucks for that. If you buy 10 copies, that'll cost you a couple hundred dollars. And I'll come in and do that for anyone who um, who buys 10 or more copies. So, and for you, Justin, I don't care how many copies you've bought, I'll come <laughs> in and do that Q&A for you and your team. <laughs> uh, I love it. I'm taking you up on that. And anyone listening awesome. should take you up on that too. That is, what an offer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great offer. And it's That's really so cool, cool, right? It's it's really because yeah. I mean, I'm so thankful that people would buy the book. I'm I'm really, I'm really grateful for that. And so again, I'm I'm more than happy to do that. Yeah. Well, our biggest challenge is is by far leadership. We have some great project managers and technicians who know how to install, they know how to manage these jobs. But when it comes to a growing company like ours, we have to develop our people quicker at least 5% quicker than our company grows. Hmm. And that is such a huge, huge task on our leadership team and on our, our people is how do you grow people? If your company's growing 30% a year, how do you grow your people 35% a year? But we want to grow our people because we don't want to just hire professionals over the top of our five and 10 year senior leaders. We want to develop them. And I hope this book is going to give us some of those tools to continue that development and continue to stay ahead of the of the curve just just a little bit of our our company. Absolutely. I, I think just what you described there, there's tons of stuff in here that's extremely practical, extremely usable that will help you do exactly that. All right. So Eric, this has been amazing podcast. I have six pages of notes at least and a bunch of great takeaways. At the end of these episodes, we ask for some trade secrets. Something yes. that you're not going to find in a book. Well, maybe yours, yeah, <laughs> but <right. laughs> for the most part, <laughs> it's, it's things that are going to just, people can walk away with and say, wow, I'm going to apply that tomorrow. So what would your trade secret be that you'd like to share with the listeners today? Um, the number one thing is play long-term games with long-term people. And what I mean by games. that, yeah, yeah, long-term games with long-term people. When I when I started my business, I made a twenty-year commitment to the construction industry, and um, I'm not the most spectacular guy in the world, but I'm going to show up every day and I'm going to seek to solve problems and add value. And so, commit to playing long-term games with long-term people, and if you want to succeed, solve problems, add value, and outwork everyone. I love that. It's so true. Is... It's so simple, but so true. I think people are very much so, especially right now, focused on the short game and to flip it over and, and focus on the long game. That's incredible. Thank you, Eric. Yep. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Eric. I think that's a great way to end the show. I appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope our listeners got a ton of value added today. My pleasure. It's been a privilege. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, Eric. 